Uh, For those who can read, you can see this is the outline of this final vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, we're up to the next stage in this marriage supper, which is the, the appearance of the one who has arranged and overseen this marriage from the beginning, the father of the bridegroom. So we've seen the glorious bridegroom, uh, we've heard of his glorious victories and his victory that's been given to the saints. Soon we'll see the glorious bride, the new Jerusalem, but it is the father who will present the bride and the bridegroom to one another. Jonathan Edwards wrote in 1746, The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse, towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature, and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love and grace that was in his heart and that in this way God might be glorified. Or in other words, the reason the Father created all things was to find a bride for his Son. Everything he's done from let there be light onwards has been with this goal in mind. So we know now with the appearance of the Father that the wedding itself is about to begin. But not before we see how the Father has put everything in place. Colossians 1, 19-20 says of Jesus, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now this word reconcile here uh, isn't referring to relational reconciliation. It's not saying that in the end everyone will be saved. It's reconciled in the same sense as a bank reconciliation statement. We saw one of those last week at our AGM. Every cent is accounted for and shown to be exactly where it should be. So the reconciliation accomplished in the cross of Jesus uh, is in that sense putting everything into its rightful place. So his saints are raised up, reigning with him in their rightful place as co-heirs of the Father. But it also means that those who remain unrepentant are also put in their rightful place. And that's what the final judgment is putting everything and everyone in their right place. Now, as we've done a number of times already, again, we need to go back to Daniel 7 to uh, get a bigger picture of what's been communicated in this part of the vision. So, Daniel 7 from verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, 
and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. See the whiteness of the Ancient of Days here in his clothing and his hair and the whiteness of his throne described here as fiery flames, the intense white hot fire of his holiness. Then a bit later in Daniel 12, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. So see how this vision in Revelation 20 brings those two together, Daniel 7, Daniel 12. God sits as the judge in the courtroom of heaven and every creature will stand before him. Notice also that he said to Daniel to shut up and seal the words of this book because their full and true meaning won't be revealed until the time of the end. That's the time we're in now, the last days inaugurated by Jesus. Revelation is the unsealing, the opening up of what Daniel saw. See, at the time that Daniel prophesied, the Jews could have read his prophecies as being just about themselves and their return from exile. But now that Daniel's words have been opened up in Revelation, we see that the vision is much bigger than just Israel. It's about all nations, all people. And it's much bigger than just their return to the land in the 6th century BC. It's about the renewal of the heavens and the earth. So let's see what John sees and what it means for us who are living in the time of the end. Now this is the 33rd mention of God's throne in Revelation. Uh, The throne is mentioned all the way through the book. He first, John first saw God's throne in chapter 4 as he was taken into heaven and ever since then everything has played out before the throne, under the supervision and the direction of the Father. So this isn't a new or different throne, it's what's new about it is the way it's described, simply as great and white. It's size and it's colour, signifying absolute authority by its bigness and absolute holiness by its whiteness. But bigness and whiteness isn't just describing the throne, it's describing God who sits on the throne, ruling creation with absolute power, with 
absolute holiness, perfect holiness. And in this scene, nothing else about the throne or the things around it or the creatures around it matter. There's no mention of the living creatures or the rainbow or the altars of incense. There's simply the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, in all of his holy majesty. In this vision, God and his throne are so big, so bright, that earth and sky are squeezed out of the picture. They have to flee away. But there's something else being communicated here than just the idea that there was no room for them. The earth and sky flee, but in verse 13 we'll see that the sea remains. What's happening here is a picture of creation being brought back ready for a new beginning. Do you remember the creation story? In the beginning there was God and when he created the earth it was formless and void and dark with the spirit hovering over the waters. Then in the first phase of creation, God brought order to the formlessness. He separated light from dark, the sky from the sea and the sea from the dry land. Creation was then separated into the three domains of the earth, the sky and the sea. Then in the second phase he brought fullness to the emptiness. He filled the three domains, the sky with the sun, moon and the stars and the birds, the seas with the fish and the sea creatures and the earth with plants and animals and then human beings to rule over them all. So here it's almost as if everything has been rolled back to stage one with only the sea remaining ready for the new creation, which we'll see next week. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, is the next verse after this passage. In the popular imagination, the day of judgment is the same as the end of the world. But the day of judgment will be more of a beginning than an end. It will only be an end in the sense that everything that the Father has being setting in place for this great marriage supper of the Lamb will finally be complete. It will be the end of this age of preparation but the beginning of the next age of eternity. As we've seen in Daniel, this is the throne of judgment, verse 12. And see who is standing before it, the dead great and small. Now, there's two things to notice here. Firstly, there's a group of people missing. Everyone standing before the throne is described as dead. The living are somewhere else. We saw them last week. In verse 4, those who have already come to life and are reigning with Christ those who shared in the first resurrection. For them and for you, if you have trusted in Christ alone as your justification, the judgement 
of the great white throne has already come. It's already finished. When Jesus bore your sin on the cross and destroyed every single record of your transgressions. So when you stand before the throne of God, it won't be for assessment and judgment. It will be so that you may worship him as you sing the song of the Lamb. That's why there are other books opened, but also another book, which is the book of life. We've seen this book mentioned before in 3 verse 5. The one who conquers will be conquered thus in white, will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Then in 13.8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And then 17 verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Note some important things about This book, obviously not a literal book in heaven, but symbolic of our membership in God's family. Firstly, we don't write our names in the book. They've already been written there from the foundation of the world. This is the biblical doctrine of election, that I've been foreknown by the Father. This means that before he made the world, God the Father planned to create me in his image so that I may know him, foreknown. His knowledge of me, even before creation, was just as real and concrete as it is now. And it's more than just a factual knowledge. It's a deeply personal foreknowledge. His plan in eternity past was to create me in order that he might set his love upon me. But more than foreknowing me, we're told he predestined me to be conformed to the image of his son. So the father set in motion his plan to bring me to my destiny, to be his adopted child. That plan was that the son would be sent by the Father to take on human flesh and after dying to redeem me would send his spirit to fill and renew me and bring me to know the Father by being united to the Son. The Bible also talks about me being chosen. The Father unconditionally chose me to be one of many who would be redeemed by his Son. In order to show the freedom of his grace, not all who he created will be adopted into his family. But by his grace, I've been included in those whom he is redeeming from the whole of humanity. Not because of anything I would do or be, but purely the freedom of his mercy. So, 
The basis for your name being in this book isn't anything you've done, not your decision or commitment or your promise to follow Jesus, but because of the free, sovereign, loving, merciful action of the Father right from the very beginning. Second thing about this book is it's the Lamb's book. He's the one who writes my name there on the basis of his atoning blood. And the reason he writes my name there, see, is that he may confess my name before his Father and the angels. Remember that image we saw earlier in chapter 3 of the wedding banquet with Jesus standing at the door with the guest list of all who have been invited to the banquet. He is the one authorised to let you in because your entry was paid for by his precious blood. So your name's on the list. The third thing is that knowing that our names are in the Lamb's Book of Life enables us now to be free from slavery to idolatry, to not worship or marvel at the beast because we've been captivated by a far greater beauty, that of the Lamb who was slain for us. And so we're free to worship him alone. So there's three reasons of why those whose names are in the book of life are exempt from judgment based on what's in those other books. These books contain a record of everything that every person has ever done. The book of life is the record of everything that Jesus has done. If you reject the call to come and be part of the first resurrection through faith in Jesus, then you're essentially saying to God, I'm prepared to be judged based on my own merits. I believe I'm good enough, or at least my good works are greater than my bad deeds. I can measure up to the standard required for entry into heaven. Now, I suspect the, suspect the average person, when they think about whether there even is an afterlife or some kind of moral reckoning when they die, will think in this way. Whether they conceive of the afterlife as heaven or reincarnation or nirvana or something else, most people would consider themselves good enough or at least not bad enough to miss out. I once had a conversation with a man who didn't consider himself religious. As we were parting, he said to me, next time you're in church, can you put in a good word for me? Then he hastily added, I'm not too bad a bloke. The sad irony was that about a year later, I conducted his funeral. And I had no words of hope that I could offer, only an encouragement to remember him in our conversations. See, the problem with the I'm not too bad a bloke philosophy is twofold. Firstly, the standard required for entering into heaven isn't not too bad. It's absolute perfection. As Jesus said, 
You therefore must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And secondly, even perfect righteousness won't get you there if it's not a righteousness that flows out of a relationship with God. Jesus said in the end of one of his parables about the final judgments, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Their works, they prophesied, they performed miracles, but their works, no matter how good, were considered as works of lawlessness because they were done in the absence of a relationship with Jesus. And note that he doesn't say, you never knew me, as they claim, but I never knew you. In other words, your names are not written in my book of life. What made you think you could somehow get in there by doing all these good works? So while I've posed this question before, I'll pose it again. Are you expecting to stand before the great white throne of judgement and rely on the things that you have done as recorded in the books? Or are you going to rely on the things that Christ has done for you and on your name being written by him in his book of life? All of the religions of the world can be summed up in one word, do. They all base our ultimate salvation, however they describe or define it, on what we must do to earn favour, improve ourselves, climb the ladder, reach enlightenment, make the world better, win converts and the list goes on and on. But Christianity isn't one of the major religions of the world because it can be summed up also in one word, done. It's not about how we fill up books with the records of our mighty deeds, but how one book has already been filled by the mighty deeds of God in Jesus Christ. His final words from the cross weren't go out and do, but it is done, finished, complete. So I urge you, if you have not yet put your trust in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf, don't delay. Turn to him now in repentance and faith and you're guaranteed to receive everything he offers, forgiveness, peace with God, rest from your labours, freedom from the slavery of the fear of death and a hope that will never disappoint. Hope is what drives the Christian life. Romans 5, 1-2 tells us, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. As will be seen soon in the authentic life, a hope that's set not on our own ambition or wishful thinking, but on God himself and his glory, gives us a firm foundation for our faith, since faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And faith that's set on that firm foundation is then one that issues forth in genuine love. 
the authentic human living that we are designed for. The greatest killer of hope, of course, is death. No matter how much hope we have in the things, in the prospects of this life, it will always end in the grave. So we need a hope that is greater, that goes beyond the grave. And this passage this morning tells us how we may have such a bold hope. So in verses 13 and 14 we meet again two figures who have appeared earlier in Revelation. So see how this final vision of Revelation is tying up all of the problems that were raised earlier in the book. In chapter 6, as Jesus is opening the, the scroll, the seals on the scroll, he opened the fourth seal and I heard the voice of the four, fourth living creature say, Come and looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Death and Hades are presented in Revelation as if they're actual persons, which emphasises the power of fear they can hold over a person. We're more inclined to be fearful of personal evil than of abstract evil. The idea of death is one thing, and we might try to deal with it by pushing it to the back of our minds, convincing ourselves that it's still a long way off, we don't have to worry about it just yet. But the image of death as a person coming into our home without warning, with sword drawn to take us, that's harder to ignore. Cultures and religions across the world have figures that are personifications of death, which shouldn't surprise us because, as I said, death is the great killer of all hope. We also saw that these two figures, death and Hades, are a picture of the ultimate outcome of the curse. Two sides of the coin, so to speak. The death of the body by returning to dust and then the death of the soul by going to Hades. Earlier on in chapter 1, when Jesus first introduces himself, he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. We saw that this means that Jesus has the power and authority to enter the house of death and Hades where we were held captive. He did that through his cross and by being buried in the tomb. He defeated them, he bound them, he plundered their treasures, he stole their keys, he unlocked our prison cell and he set us free from their power over us. He brought us out into freedom and into his father's house where there were no cells for slaves, there's only a place prepared for us at his table. And he did that through his resurrection. So we meet death and Hades again, but for the last time ever. They're robbed of their power. They're forced to give up the dead to be judged by God. 
And then they're taken up as one and thrown into a lake of fire. Now don't get caught up on this image, imagining that hell is literally a lake of fire. Remember, this is a symbolic vision. Other images are used of hell, such as the outer darkness, which if taken literally uh, isn't compatible with literal fire because fire produces light. Uh, In the Bible, fire, with a few exceptions, represents the holy wrath of God, the heat of his indignation, the pain of knowing only his disapproval, his face turned away from us. It's an image of final, complete and everlasting judgement from which there's no return. So before you become anxious about verse 15 and the unrepentant being thrown into this fiery lake, make sure you first clearly see verse 14. Death and Hades are going in first. They will not have the final say over anyone who is in Christ. Their power to rob you of hope has been stripped from them because they have been conquered by the risen Jesus. Whenever you encounter death, whether it's what you see on the news every day, whether it's the death of someone close to you or the reminders of your own mortality, when you remember it's maybe closer to you than you think, take it as a reminder of what it is Jesus has saved you from. When you face grief, when you struggle to come to terms with the loss of a loved one, remind yourself this experience is actually a gift from the Father to remind you to look beyond the shallow hopes and dreams of this world and to fix your eyes on Jesus who's conquered death. So now that the Father has appeared on the scene of this great marriage supper drama, everything is set and ready to roll for the marriage ceremony itself. And that's what we'll see next week. Let's pray.